Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT uh, University in Melbourne, and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm here with a very well-known architect. You've probably seen his shingle. You've probably heard his name. You've probably seen his work published in various magazines and journals. And it's architect Alan Powell. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you. Alan, you've got a very fascinating history and, and um, really a very important, you represent a very important part of Melbourne's architectural scene. Not wanting to read out your whole CV, you, um, you studied at Melbourne University and then did a master's at RMIT. That's right. And you also uh, started your working practice with Guilford Bell. Uh, yes, I worked with him while I was at the university. I was there for a year and then uh, I went back and finished off the couple of years I had to do and then went back to him for about another year or two. It, it, in total, it was about two or three years, but it was it seemed more. He had a very big influence. He was a very uh, imposing personality. Alan, when, was, when, when, you, when were you working with him? Probably... S- in the 70s. In the 70s. Yes. Tell me about that experience, because I think he's such a legend in Melbourne. Well, he, he was. He was uh, he'd studied in London in the 30s with a famous architect whose name I can't remember, who used to wear court dress, uh, silk trousers and silk stockings, <laughs> and, and drove an old Bentley, a silver Bentley. So he certainly uh, was a bridge to a world that doesn't exist yeah. anymore. And... Um, Guilford uh, was very uh, autocratic, which I think you sort of had to be in those days. People were. It had been a difficult time in history with the wars and depression and things. And Guilford uh, was very adamant and very confident in what he did. His buildings, uh, his plans and designs and elevations are very symmetrical and he'd go to the most extraordinary lengths to, um, to ensure that everything was symmetrical. I remember once he put a client asked for a clock and he put two clocks in and she said, what are the two clocks for? And they were there to balance one another, of course, but he said, oh, international time, which she was happy with. (laughs) He was very symmetrical. I mean, symmetrical doorways, symmetrical courtyards, everything was symmetrical. Alan, how did that influence your work? What influenced me about Guildford, why I went there in the first place was the sort of planarity, just the planes and the walls, uh, uh, the very pared down form. And there was a cover on Domus uh, when I was a student that showed a Louis Berrigan courtyard. It was just a corner, a corner with a shadow cast across it, which was a huge thing in those days because uh, uh, architecture was complicated, although it was modernist, it was complicated fussy shapes and angles and butterfly roofs and patterns and things. And Guilford didn't have any of that, he just had the corner and the wall and the shadow and uh, uh, I think the Drysdale House shows that best, it's one that he did in the uh, uh, near Sydney on the coast and it's just a wall really and uh, I found that tra- transporting really, that is what architecture was for me. So you've continued with his some of his legacies. Well, I was attracted to that in him. Uh, I think it was always in me. I look at the sketches I did when I was a schoolboy, and it's all there, interestingly. Uh, in fact, everything I do now is, is in drawings done by a 15-year-old. Um, so then you, you left university, you left Guilford Bell's practice. Mm. When did you establish your own practice? 
Uh, I just started on my own when I was uh, 31, I think, about that age. And um, I I just thought I'll, uh, I'll just do anything to get started. Uh, I, um, what were some of the first projects? Look, I like? can't remember, but uh, I always had this sort of hippie feeling that... Um, you know, I'd, I'd been educated and someone had paid for a university education, therefore it was my job. If a bricklayer wanted a sunroom on the back, I had to provide it. <laughs> I certainly went through that period rather unsuccessfully and um, started that way. And a- actually, the first real design projects were a friend of mine opened a, uh, a restaurant and, uh, no, yeah. uh, it was called the Metropole. It was in High Street, Morven, and yeah, uh, and uh, then there was the Shono in South Melbourne, which attracted attention. The Shono had very much my trademarks. I I kept the fifties stainless steel window frame, which in those days was an extraordinary thing to do. Now everyone would do it. Um, it was it had been a fish and chip shop, and it had a sort of fry up counter in the front, which yeah. I kept. And uh, it had all the most discerning people in Melbourne coming to eat there in what was really basically a big converted uh, fish and chip shop with a vinyl floor. Late 70s, early 80s? I think around then, yeah. 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 The other uh, restaurant that really made a bit of a name for you was uh, D'Astasio's, Ronnie D'Astasio's restaurant. D'Astasio was... um, Yes, I actually, uh, I I knew he was looking for something and I saw the shop that was empty because I was in St Kilda and we had a look. And uh, I'm happy with it because I really did what I wanted to do. Uh, And um, he he was a terrific client too because we stripped all the, it had been a steak cave with red flock wallpaper and when we took the the (laughs) wallpaper off and plastic, black plastic beams when we took the wallpaper off all the marks and the glue were there and he said Venice and we left it and uh, you don't get many clients who think like that I mean you can take that for granted now all that very uh, honest approach to buildings but when we're looking at the early 80s uh, when really it was quite a glitzy period to actually strip back things and leave the history and the marks and the pop marks it looked it looked a bit wet and passive i i don't uh, have much love for um what is called for the architectural manifestation of of, uh, postmodernism i uh, i think that architecture Ought to be architectonic and spatial, and you should be able to walk through it. And I'm, and when I hear that skin is the new depth, I'm not happy. Yeah. You think it's become very superficial, in part. I don't know if you can use the word yeah. superficial, but it it doesn't uh, express what I think is important. It doesn't do anything for me. So sometimes things yeah. do. I mean, uh, uh, there can be some wonderful creations out of very thin materials and there's no attempt to look solid or architectonic and I, uh, I of course I, I can see that I'm looking at some of the projects you've done one of them's for RMIT University yep. in um, Cardigan Street yes and building 94 building 94 mm. designed probably 10 years ago uh, I think it's yes it's about that a bit more probably um, 
Well, the idea there was that they had a building along the road from it that had been, uh, the site had been, uh, the envelope had been pushed out to the maximum of the street and so you had a flat front with a bit of postmodern decoration on it. And I wanted to use space to make a facade. So I wanted to take the chaos of the city and compress it into a smaller shape, a building size shape. Mm. And I wanted to be engaged by space on the street. So I wanted, uh, there are a couple of entrances to this building. You can walk up to the first floor, you can walk in at the ground level. And I wanted it, I wanted to gnaw away at the flat front. I wanted to enter it. And then I thought, well, what's the experience that this building can give? A lot of the students and the kids come from the outer suburbs and really had never been much to the city, CBD. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of lines of sight in the building. Wherever you are, you, you look through the building and you see the horizon and you mm-hmm. see the CBD. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to take what I thought essentialise the experience of the CBD. Because often in CBD buildings you are very enclosed. Yes. You, there is a sense you could feel entrapped. Yes, and I wanted this to celebrate being in the city. And there's a cafe in the front on a terrace, and so there's, there's the opportunity to occupy and be in the facade. Um, one of the landmark buildings that you've done is Tarawara. Yes. Which won numerous awards and quite an extraordinary building. Um, I think it won a Victorian Design Award as well. It, it did win that, yes. It... Um, uh, it, it, it did win the Design Award. The brief for that must have been quite interesting. Well, again, the brief was a little bit simplistic. And like D'Astasio, there wasn't... But what there was was a hugely... Just as Ronnie D'Astasio knows everything there is about kitchen and food delivery, mm. so we used to go to the Florentino bar and have a coffee and you'd watch the traditional girls there. There'd be 600 mils between the counter and the coffee machine and they'd pass holding dishes and plates, just a gentle excuse and, and we used to love the professionalism. What I had the similar level of professionalism at Tarawara because Morty Palmer knew had an answer to everything. She knew exactly what she wanted in the gallery. So I was able to say, is this too big, too small? Mm. Is that what you wanted? And I got an answer. One of the most delightful parts of that gallery, in my opinion, is that huge uh, window wall in the last gallery and you look at the vines mm. and the slope of the land and you really get a sense of where you are. It's yes. quite magical. Well, that you've used a phrase that means something to me. I, I always will say, uh, someone will say, have you been to the new restaurant somewhere? And I'll say, I've been, but you don't go anywhere. And you haven't gone anywhere. You're not transported to anywhere different. It's the same state of mind that's out on the footpath. And um, I feel with Tarawari you do go somewhere. I tried to think, what is the essential experience here? And it was certainly looking up that valley and looking at the vines. That's amazing. Also, um, there are a lot of other principles that interest me in design that are there. You know, where is the... CBD, uh, which direction? How does that weight your the direction of of, of uh, other activities? How does that weight your reading of the space and things? I often think it's like a ship turning, Tarawara, depending on where the sun is and mm-hmm. where the shadows are and what state of mind you're in. You're either looking, you look out, and suddenly it's all turned around. That's the other. The other thing, Alan, is that even though it's a beautiful building, it also works beautifully as a gallery, and that's something that. 
it's not just about the architecture, it's actually about how the art will be displayed. Well, I have got, a, oddly enough, a very uh, practical, drearily practical aspect to my personality, and I read the brief very carefully, and I saw that they could only employ to afford to have one person there, so the desk mm. needed to be able to have surveillance over the galleries. Mm. And... Uh, they said that that was one of the things they liked about the design, that they realised that. Uh, my designs are pretty impossible to pick up on uh, drawings. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, because they depend on subtleties and perceptions that are not in drawings. Are you still very much a sketch person? I sketch non-stop, and then the office <laughs> turns them into Wonderful. usable electronic is it, documents. Is it difficult to make that... No, it's connection. Not, they no, understand no. what We've you're got thinking. A fantastic uh, group of people, and they understand what yeah, you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Bandura. Yeah. Well, that's another um, building that's quite interesting. Also, concrete. It's concrete panels preformed. Uh, the form of the building comes from one of the principles that I believe in in design. Uh, it's a bit like approaching a range of hills or something. The road moves, and you can't suddenly the hills that were spread across the horizon and in front of you suddenly turn around and they're narrow and thin and and I, I've always been aware that if you can't if you take the conventionalised way of seeing a form away from it uh, it affects you much more profoundly so uh, the way a natural formation does like a rock or air's rock or something This is for RMIT University This is RMIT and so I was very happy to make a, an amorphous form uh, that changes and is very hard to grasp. And to be honest, it and when it's hard to grasp, you're forced to engage with it on a more atavistic sort of ontological you're drawn level. To it. You, you're drawn into it to complete it and try and understand. And I have had trouble working out where the building was myself from photographs. I can't quite understand it. It is like a photograph of a his rock. <laughs> anyway, uh, wonderful building. Um, the other thing with houses, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of your houses over the years, um, yeah. and they're they're all very different, but they they all very they all have a very strong signature. Also, very classical, a bit like Guildford Bell's work, that you wouldn't change a thing. And recently, some people approached me, and they were interested in looking at one of your houses you did in Malvern, I think, in the early eighties, early to mid eighties. And you know, the woman was saying she has to redo the bathroom, the kitchen, and I just glared at her. <laughs> I just said, "Look, just leave it." I said, yeah. "You'd be destroying something," and yeah. I'm sure it's fabulous. And no, I, don't know. I find it it's interesting that people have this need to continually update things when really they're losing the value of the vision that someone had 30 years ago. Yes, I suppose there's, oh. there's a weighting to the value of uh, those early things. Uh, you know, quite often those houses still had a tenuous connection to the sort of post-war Boyd, etc., where there was no money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the... You go back a decade or two, a couple of decades, and the houses are much poorer there's there's not the materials or the space in them. And so you don't have a problem with people updating Well, I can sort it. of understand that. No, yeah. there, are, there are things that matter to me and things that don't matter. And uh, there are spatial things that mean a great deal to me. You put one, you know, garden stake in the wrong place and it upsets me, but there are other things that I... <laughs> you can rip out the kitchen I, and bathrooms, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. What is it, when someone enters an Alan Powell house, what's something that you would like to think that, resonates with them? Well, apparently it does, because uh, some friends of mine 
visited her house and they said they could tell it had some quality that they insisted was mine and the owner couldn't, uh, I don't think the owner had built it. Couldn't and put their finger on it. Couldn't put their finger Anyway, it turned out it was one I'd done. And, and what was that quality, Alan? There is a moodiness to the to the uh, the way the light comes in, the spaces. Uh, we have lines of sight in houses, um, sort of wherever you are, you're looking through and out. Uh, the window and opening shapes are proportions tend to repeat, but then I realised that they do with most architects. Uh, that window shapes and sizes and things, so you get a sort of uh, satisfactory language. Yeah. And uh, but the the shadows in some of your houses are as important as the light. I think so. Yeah, yeah I think that's yeah, something that resonates yeah, with yeah, me. Yeah, I, I, without getting into a very complex issue, uh, Tarawara, what I said, it's like a ship turning, and suddenly what was in the morning side and and bright is suddenly not. Bright, you know, it, I'm hugely affected. I believe that the reading of a building is really the reading of light, mm. and I think. I've forgotten which architect said, great modernist master said, if you turn all the lights out, there's no architecture. Well, that's obvious too. So you really create the space with light. And the other thing that I would say is quite important with your buildings is the landscape. The landscape is continuous with the architecture. I mean, it evolves with it. It's the same spaces being carried through and outside. I'm trying in a way to connect the interior space with almost with the horizon. Helen, do you get very involved in the landscape design? Yes, we. Uh, uh, I, have, I have a theory with architect with landscape architecture, and that is that very few people are plants people, knowledgeable about plants, and spatial. Very few. Anyone who shows an ability in both is other great. Mm. And most people can probably work out a bit of a plan spatially, and then they're in, architects probably do that a bit, and then they're in trouble with the plants that make mm. the space. And a lot of landscape people are good plants people. They know, understand the plants and what's appropriate and getting what they call texture, small leaves, big so leaves. So do you tend to do more in-house? Well, what I'd, we do, we've learnt to do, is to have the owner appoint a landscape architect and then we say this is the spatial outcome we want. We want this internal space carried through externally like this with this wall continuing through there and you make it out of what you like. Mm. You know about the plants and we find they're happy with that because very few of them are really architects, really can shape the spaces in the garden. must upset you enormously when a client appoints the wrong landscape designer. Enormously. And then you get this European... French or French style garden yeah. that just yeah. has no connection to yeah. the house. It's very, it must very be an- terrible. Very annoying to see uh, strong, the whole thing. a strong space and then suddenly there's a pot plonked in the middle of. Uh, <laughs> and and, and uh, so it's. But Can you, do you go over and kind of just try and coerce the <laughs> well, pot? Somewhere? Well, sadly, it's not a coercible pot. It's it'll it'll be some built-in bloody bank, embankment or yeah. or something. But um, the people. At my stage of career, the people who we're working for can hear what I'm saying to you now, and so we can describe that and discuss it with them, and they are responsive. And 
Alan, you were mentioning on the way here, you were saying um, you're quite happy not to take on work if you feel, feel there isn't a synergy between architect and client. Yes, that sounds very... Um, elitist. Elitist. I yeah. remember reading about some architect saying that you know he was approached at four o'clock in the afternoon by an important figure, would you consider designing a house for me? And the architect said, I thought all night, and at eight o'clock in the morning I rang and said, I shall. And I thought, what rubbish... <laughs> But um, I'm getting a bit that way myself because I can sort of tell it. T- I can, we can see that we are not talking the same language. Yeah. Yeah. What are the signs that scare you off? If someone says, oh, I know what I like, or... I think that probably puts it fairly well when they say we know what... That would be the worst case. We know what we want. We know what we like. So uh, get a drafting service, not me. In essence, mm. yes, because it means they've got very entrenched ideas. We we looked at something. We try to I try to be helpful with people, not leave them leave them not knowing what to do. And uh, someone had bought an awful spec built house on the beachfront, mm. and they knew what they wanted to do to change it. But I knew that it wasn't going to change. It wasn't going to do anything, yeah. and. So we did what we thought would be useful and show, showed it to them, and we didn't hear any more, and we sort of accept that. Yeah, Alan, what gives you the most pleasure about architecture still? I mean, you've been practising for many, many years. What, yeah. what still fires you up? Where I've been able to make the spaces that I wanted, and I see that they're there, and and uh, that gives me a lot of uh, pleasure to see that they've uh, uh, withstood time, and um, that they're still affecting people forcefully and positively. Mm. I, I um, it gives me a real kick, for instance, at Cafe Stasio that uh, a lot of photographers have tried to photograph it. Well, you can't because there's nothing there. Mm. And uh, mm. <laughs> what's there are a few afternoon mm. shadows from the mm. Venetian blinds. Mm. And, um, but it's hugely sort of atmospheric and affects your state of mind a lot. And that uh, I'm beginning to get back in articles and comments and people the, the understanding that they're seeing that. that, that that's... When I first did that sort of thing and talked in those terms, people didn't know what I was talking about. Mm. And now I'm starting to see journalists even saying that there's some state of mind that they can't grasp and mm. something, which, is lovely. which I'm very happy about. Alan, thanks so much for coming in and speaking with me today. Uh, it's been wonderful. You've got so many projects that, you know, we could spend all day here, but maybe we'll have you back again. But look, thanks for coming in. Um, it's been a, a treat. And you've been with Stephen Crafty at RMIT University, Talking Design.